think we need to talk about who we are. Mm-hmm. So now that we have a small number of people yeah. listening and to us, I think we need to let them know who we are. So what we are saying is based on experience. Yep. Yeah. So my name's Kaylee. I've been a labor doula for about six years now. I teach childbirth education and I came to this field of work after my positive experience having the support of a doula. And my name is Bill Chan. I'm a board certified OBGYN. Funny story. Here I am in Boston, a mecca of medicine. Did I just say Boston? I think I just said that. You get a little accent. (laughs) Thirty-some years in Boston. Um, My story is that coming from Korea as a 12-year-old boy, and after graduating from the Ohio State University College of Medicine, I've spent my entire medical career in Boston, or Boston, 30-some years. 30-some years, I think, is significant because when I tell you, since many of you probably were not born when I started my training, is that I was trained before the age of cell phone. Can you remember the last time or the time your life was without cell phone? No. So after my medical school, I came to Boston City Hospital and four years in inner city hospital in Boston where we didn't have all these fancy iPhones or mm-hmm. ultrasound or the latest tests to figure out what you're having, boy or girl, or genetic study as of nine or 10 weeks. It was, everything was based on history and examination. I think that's a significant part of my training where I learned to talk to people. I learned to listen. And after four years of training, I got really lucky because my training was refined by three midwives who supplemented my training in the very beginning of my career. So from early on, I, I was told that episiotomy is out of is something that should not be done. Um, delayed core clamping. Mm-hmm or waiting for placenta rather than actively trying to deliver placenta, we're talking about hands off, walk away, let the placenta be passed. So, and 30 some years, what has changed in obstetrics? Nothing. That's what we're trying to say. We don't understand uterus. And I, as a person who've delivered thousands of babies, I'm telling you, obstetrics hasn't changed. And my approach to normal pregnancy, prenatal care, as well as high risk, is really starting with establishing the conversation with the patient. Mm -hmm. And it's all about shared decision making. Absolutely. You and I met when I came to you as a patient. I was pregnant with my my second son and um, my care was was phenomenal. And and so much so that now here we are, four years later, still working together and you know, I think you practice what you preach is this, you know, building relationships, talking to people, this hands-off approach, which is what attracted me to your practice from the get-go. And now we get to work together with so many shared clients and patients. And I'm always excited when a client says, you know, I'm with Dr. Chun because I know that they're going to get good support and good care. What we are trying to do through this platform is really to educate you and have you understand that you have options. Mm -hmm. And I 
I don't know why that is. People don't understand that healthcare is like any other business transaction. Mm -hmm. It should be like how you approach in buying a house, mm -hmm. buying a car, wedding ring, anything else. You should have choices based on information that you gather. Absolutely. And, you know, we hear comments about, you know, I wish it wasn't this way or I wish, you know, this could happen this way. And we understand, but the system is broken. And there's a reason why the United States has one of the highest mortality rates for mothers, especially women of color. And we want it to change. We want to see it change. But we are here to help you learn about what you can do to make your experience better. Um, like you said, this is a business. And we have to start saying we're going to take our money elsewhere um, if we want to see some, some real change. Reading some of the comments really hit me as to how so many of you are not given the best environment opportunities to really experience this um, journey, as we call it. There is nothing like the birth of your newborn, and you should be doing this with the right provider in the right setting mm -hmm. and understand that this is a life-changing event. Yeah. And, and one of the comments I made was, hey, I, I want to make sure that my staff knows all my um, patients, right? Yeah. And a few comments that said, well, they see so many patients, how could they know? I'm that if you go to that kind of office, maybe you should change your office. And by the way, I want to say something. In that distribution of providers in this country, is it's not fair. I mean, I'm talking from Boston. Mm -hmm. And I know there are many parts in this country where there are no prenatal care providers, midwives, obstetricians, or um, general practitioners, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that comes up a lot or we hear a lot is, you know, explore other options. And I think this is a good segue to talk about the option of midwifery care and home birth as an option for certain low-risk people. I, you know, one of the ways to reduce cesarean section in this mm -hmm. country is educating and training more midwives. Mm -hmm. and, and I do want to say some babies do not come vaginally. Right. There's no, there's no shame. Yeah. At the end, you get the same prize, mm -hmm. right? And not everyone can have a midwife. You know, some people are more comfortable with obstetrical care from an OB, and other people can't. They risk out of midwifery care, and they need an induction for legitimate medical reasons, or they need a cesarean section. And it's so amazing that we have those options because if we didn't have those options, you know, those people would, would have very poor outcomes. So about 90% of birth are done by physicians, mm -hmm. something under 10% by midwives. And as of 2020, 1.3% of birth done at home, mm -hmm. mostly planned, I think about 13% unplanned home birth. Now, how do we get to have more midwives in this country like they do in other advanced countries is by demand. Yep. Right? Yeah, by demand. We need to make it more of a normal thing. Um, educate people about the option, and I think we need to pay midwives more. Yes. And so the f one question, I, one thing I had said was one of the ways to decrease cesarean section is better, educa better education for patients. Mm -hmm. And we need more midwives, 
and and you had mentioned cost. Mm -hmm. The current incentive, financial incentive, really doesn't work in that if a doctor is scheduling a 30-minute procedure, a C-section, mm -hmm. which often takes 30 minutes, maybe a little bit longer with a repeat, why should that doctor be paid more than a midwife who stays up 24 to 36 hours with you? Mm -hmm. And amazing vaginal delivery mm -hmm. and the patient recovers quicker mm -hmm. but the way it is right now it's not the case and right. that has to change yep absolutely like i said the system's broken and there's ways that we could make small changes that would make a world of difference following that topic the reason we are here is because doula in, yeah. my, in you know when i tell people about doula what is a doula what is that? Many people still don't yeah. understand what doula is. And I say simply, doula is a lay person, mm -hmm. non-clinical person whose job is to support you during labor mm -hmm. and delivery mm -hmm. and postpartum. Exactly. I always say my job is to bring comfort to that birthing family. So whether it's physical comfort to the person that's in labor with position changes and massage or counter pressure, whatever it is I can do to make this process more physically comfortable for them, I do that. I also don't want to make them comfortable in understanding what's happening to them. So educationally, we're non-clinical, but we're trained in understanding like the anatomy and physiology of birth. So we can say, yeah, this is normal, or you might feel this next. Um, and also helping them feel comfortable in being self-advocates. So this was a big thing. You know, being a doula, we're there to create space for people to advocate for themselves, to ask the right questions, to ask for time, to ask for space, to be able to know that they can say no to things or say stop to things. Um, and just making them more comfortable in being able to do that and giving them the resources and the tools to do that. So we're talking about continuous support. What I mean by that is many of you going to a large practice with three, four, five, six physicians. So if you are in a hospital setting, mm -hmm. laboring for a day or two, that's two, three, four different doctors. Exactly. And nurses are usually uh, they usually work 12-hour shifts. But imagine if you had one person, Kaylee, <laughs> who has seen from the beginning on Monday and she's still with you on Tuesday, mm -hmm. and maybe it's just that last hour the patient needs before delivery takes place, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we're there building that relationship prenatally so I have people that hire me as early as 12 weeks as soon as they know they've gotten out of that first trimester and they're ready to put some you know investment towards it we start working together in pregnancy so we build a relationship we build trust trust so that way anytime they have questions or anxiety I'm there as that person who can say you know yes this is normal or try this or try that or you know what why don't you reach out to your doctor um, and then through early labor I'm there to listen to the change in her voice from you know she's at home comfortably laboring to hey I'm hearing that your breathing is different and you know you can't talk to me through these contractions now why don't I come and be with you or if you want to labor at home for a long time or if you're ready to go to the hospital now would be a good time and then as soon as that that physical support, typically around active labor when it starts, as soon as there's that need for physical support, the doula then goes and joins you. Um, I would say the average amount of time I'm with a person during labor is probably 10 to 12 hours. Um, 
and I'm there for them and I'm there for their partner as well. I think a lot of times people think doulas are only for people that want to have unmedicated home births. And I've... Oh, hold it right there. That's, so unmedicated home, unmedicated birth. Yeah. We're talking about since 70 plus percent mm -hmm. of births are done with epidural. Right. So unmedicated is, it's not the majority. Right. And, and a lot of people think that that's the type of birth you need to want to have or are planning to have to have a doula when, when that's not the case at all. Majority of the births that I support are people that are birthing in a hospital and that are planning to get an epidural. And a lot of people hire me because of anxiety, because mm -hmm. they're afraid of the process. They want someone to help walk them and their partner through it and understand how to make it more comfortable for them, how to you know navigate different options as interventions are proposed or you know, discuss. So it, it's not just this, you know, a lot of people think of it as like a hippie type of thing. And, and that's not the case at all. A doula can be for any type of birth. I've supported planned C-sections where we do a lot of work prenatally to talk about how to prepare for the surgery itself, what to expect, um, working on some of the fear and anxiety surrounding it. And then we do a lot of work on how do you prepare for going home? with baby after major surgery and how can I support you there? So doulas can be for every single type of birth. Um, but one thing you mentioned that I think is important to, to come back to is that we're non-clinical. Mm -hmm. So we have no medical training at all. Um, I have been to hundreds of births now. I've been doing this for six years. I have a pretty good idea of what's going on, but I can't read a strip. I can't tell you what is, you know, a reassuring, um, you know, is that enough variation? Is this D cell too low? And are they recovering fast enough? I can tell when it goes down and when it goes up, but I can't tell my client, you know what, based on what I'm seeing with your, with your baby's heart rate, you should do X, Y, or Z because I didn't go to medical school. I took a weekend training and passed, you know, a certification. But when I say that doula shouldn't advocate for you, or tell you what to do or give you medical advice, it's because we are not trained to do so. Um, and you can take the weekend training and become a doula and you could have someone that's been, this is their first birth and tell you, you know, you should do X, Y, or Z. And I think the title doula holds a lot of weight because people think you are an expert. So it's important to know that while we have a very important role in this process, it is non-medical, and we should not be giving any medical advice or telling you when you should be induced or what you should do. I think that because a small number of doulas who are perhaps too outspoken, probably are the ones responsible for negative image mm -hmm. of doulas from provider's standpoint, standpoint yeah. right? Yeah. Because I don't understand, based on what you just said, what's the downside of hiring a doula? Nothing. There's no downside. Other, the only obstacle is the cost, yep. which we'll have to talk about later. Mm -hmm. Other than the cost, there's no downside. Yeah. I can only see a doula helping my patient throughout the length of labor and delivery. Yeah. And you had mentioned anxiety, I mean, so much of medicine is managing anxiety, mm -hmm. right? And having the uh, laboring patient with partner, with the doula, with the right staff, I think so much can be allowed to happen. Mm -hmm. um, if we talk about cesarean section, the most common reason for cesarean section is failure to progress, mm -hmm. which means cervix is not 
dilating enough over time or the head hasn't dropped. The thing is, that's a very subjective diagnosis. Yeah. So this is where I see, I mean, this is where I think if a patient was told that by a provider, you know, your cervix hasn't really done much. Mm-hmm. And I think we should do a C-section. I could see how the same patient with the right support, like you, mm-hmm. maybe allowed a little more time. Right. Just because what's the downside? I mean, she's going to get C-section anyway. What if she had additional time mm-hmm. to really say, you know, I've tried. Right. It's really about I've tried. And in, in those cases, I've, I've had it where the doctor comes in and says, you know, I think this is where we're headed. I think we need a C-section. And you know, I look at my client and say, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? And they're kind of looking at me shell-shocked and like, I don't, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to do. And that's when I can say, do you guys want a couple minutes to talk about this? Yeah. Prompting them to say to the doctor, can we have a few minutes? And then we say, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? You know, your baby's doing fine right now. The doctor said that you're healthy and the baby's healthy. They're not seeing any signs of distress. Do you guys want an hour to kind of sit and think about this? And you know, you can ask the doctor for that. And then they have that time to process. And like you said, say, I gave it every single, you know, amount of effort I could. And then in an hour or however long, you know, it is as long as that person and the baby's fine, they can come into the C-section feeling more prepared. And in that time, we also talk about, okay, if you're going into a C-section, this is what you can expect. This is what the process is probably going to be like. What fears do you have? What, what makes you anxious about this? You know, a lot of people have concerns about, will I be able to breastfeed? Um, is, is the C-section going to interfere with that at all? Tell me about what I'm going to experience in the operating room. So even just having that time to kind of help them understand what to expect and, and what the next steps are, I think can make that experience much more of a positive one. Along with the discussion about C-section, I think there are a few times where patients should be given time, Mm -hmm. such as anything invasive like amniotomy or rupturing membrane, Mm -hmm. or provider wants to place um, catheter into the uterus to measure the exact intensity of contraction as well as frequency, or placing a little scalp electro on baby's head Mm -hmm. for better monitoring of um, baby's heart rate pattern um, or, or C-section. Mm-hmm. I think these are the times where you, the patient, should say, could I have a few minutes to talk to my partner, mm-hmm. to talk to my partner and doula? Mm-hmm. Because making the decision, rather than just having the provider stand right in front of you and just staring at you, come on, I gotta go. I mean, make the darn decision here. I want to break their water. She's been, I mean, you've been however many centimeters, and I want to break the water. You know, a lot of us were having that anxiety or so anxious to break the water. Yeah. But you should say, could I have a few minutes? And often, I think this is true too, a lot of labor and delivery nurses are very supportive. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if a labor and delivery nurse steps in and says, hey, Dr. Chun, can Mary have a few minutes? Mm-hmm. And then I'd say, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell my clients, you know, the first question you ask is, am I okay and is baby okay? Yeah. And if the answer to that is yes, then we have time. And it might even be that you know you know your next step. You know what decision you're going to make. 
but you need privacy for 10 minutes to cry with your partner because this isn't what you wanted right. and you need to have those emotions and feel those emotions or you need to sit with your doula and say i didn't want to do this and i'm scared about this like i didn't want to get an epidural because i'm really afraid of needles like talk me through what what can what is this going to feel like what do i need to do um you know that, that can apply to any situation but even if you know your decision you you just need time to process this is this is why going back to finding the right provider makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think I have a unique practice, uh, one of very few practices in Greater Boston where I'm a solo practitioner. It's between myself and my patients. Mm-hmm. And when I say I get to know my patients, I get to know my patients over 12, 13, 14 visits, and whether my patient has. Um, anxiety or not, I think we can have a conversation mm-hmm. at different times mm-hmm. during labor and delivery. We can have a conversation where I know what to say right. to make her at ease along with a partner. Right. And patients really appreciate being heard. And that's the thing mm-hmm. people are not given. They want to be heard. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, there's a quote that a woman, as long as she'll live, will remember the way that she was made to feel during her labor. And I think that's that's so true. The impact that, you know, the nurse, the doctor, the midwife, the doula, whoever, her partner, their behavior and the way that they act and interact with that woman, it's going to have a significant impact on her birth experience. And I think, you know, so often I see doulas saying, you know, well, I'm ready to, to advocate or fight with the doctor or, you know, do this with the doctor. The time to, to make a difference in, in that type of a situation is prenatally and supporting your client to make sure that they have built a relationship with their doctor. And if they don't feel comfortable with their doctor, helping them to either ask the right questions, say the right things t- to build that relationship or supporting them and find a new provider. It shouldn't be in that birth space because the energy that you bring into that room can have a serious impact on the birthing person. Our body works better when it's relaxed, when it feels safe, when it feels calm. If I go in and I start yelling at Dr. Chun because I don't like what he said to my patient and I, or I know that you know my client didn't want this and I don't like the way he's approaching it, it's not going to make my client feel calm and relaxed. It's going to make them feel like, oh, crap, there's a fight here, and I need to like put my defenses up. I'm in flight or fight mode, and their labor is not going to work. They're not going to progress. Surprisingly, such event takes place. Absolutely. Because I've, I've heard of it, even mm-hmm. at the hospital that I work out of. Um, <coughs> I think another thing, too, is during labor and delivery, women feel out of control. There's a lot of things happening to their body, whether it's, you know, physically the contractions are starting and stopping and they, they're not controlling that happen. Um, you know, they're, they're being examined, they're being touched, things are happening and they feel out of control. So I think for then, you know, a doula or a partner, whoever it may be, for them to then speak on their behalf or make a decision for them based on what they discussed three months ago when they weren't in labor can make that out of control feeling feel even worse and even more intense. So giving the power back to that woman by making the space for her to say, I have questions, I need time, I think that's gonna enhance the birth experience. Let's talk a little bit about what to do when you get admitted for labor and delivery. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tell my patients and partner that this is the time to really plan ahead, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, after taking childbirth class, 
we have had patients where between Christmas lights, infuser, playlist, video list, um, making that labor and delivery room your space for a day or two mm -hmm. makes such a huge difference. Yeah. You want to feel relaxed and comfortable. I always, the, the analogy I use in my classes is if I, you are going to go to a yoga studio and take a yoga class and you go in and the lights are dim and it smells good and the instructor's there with nice music on, you're going to be able to, to focus and relax and, and get a lot more out of that yoga class than if you put an on-demand video in your living room. Um, I think of birth as the same way. You want to create that sacred space where you can relax and feel comfortable and your body is at ease because, again, that mind-body connection it's really important in labor and delivery. And when you feel safe and comfortable, your body's gonna work better. Anything else? We had a lot of questions about gestational diabetes. <coughs> gestational diabetes. <coughs> when to induce, so this is a, this is, this topic hits close to home for me. I had three mm -hmm. pregnancies that were complicated by gestational diabetes. Um, first two, I luckily went into labor spontaneously on my own, had very, very positive birth experiences. Um, my third labor, we, she, she took her time and I needed to be induced, but still a very positive experience. Um, you know, there was a lot of questions about, you know, if I have gestational diabetes, do I have to be induced at 38 weeks? Um, you know, and, I, and from my experience, you know, it really depends on you know, how you're managing it. And I think you can speak to that, you know, that's your area of expertise more. So gestational diabetes happens because placenta makes hormones to support the fetus. Yeah, and I think that's another important thing is a lot of people feel like it's their fault. No, it's, you don't have a control. And I have to say, when it, when it comes to pregnancy, only action you take is to get pregnant, mm -hmm. either in your living room or through... IVF. Help of IVF. Otherwise, there's nothing you can do about pregnancy. That includes gestational diabetes. So think about a human body. How does woman grow this little alien, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. At the same time, make sure that the host, the pregnant woman, is alive and doing well. So placenta makes lots of hormones. And gestational diabetes happens because the patient's pancreas is not producing enough insulin mm -hmm. to compensate for it. So we do a test. First of all, there are many different tests. Mm -hmm. One-step test, two-step test. Most of us in this country, we use two-step, which means we use 50 grams of sugar between 24 to 28 weeks. If the level is too high, above 130, then we do 100 grams of uh, sugar test. In some countries, they do one-step 75 milligram, uh, 75 gram of sugar on empty stomach. Mm -hmm. The somebody had asked, "What if I can't really tolerate the sugar drink?" Yeah. First of all, sugar drink, this isn't too bad, but I could see how it's. It can make you feel pretty, yeah. pretty nauseous, especially if you already are struggling with yeah. some nausea or morning sickness or just not feeling great. And, and some patients who have had gastric bypass surgery. This test doesn't work very well. So what are the alternatives? Probably the best alternative is to check fasting mm -hmm. at 24 weeks. And if you are under 85, you probably are fine. Mm -hmm. 
And if you, if I wanted to double check because patient has risk factors such as really high BMI or other family history as well as pre-existing condition, I may do it again maybe at 32 weeks. Mm -hmm. 32 weeks is usually when that insulin resistance really peaks. Mm -hmm. Some patients, um, I did this today, I told the patient, go to Amazon, mm -hmm. you order 29.99 glucometer, which gives you 100 strips, and you check your fasting, and three postprandial for a few days. Yep, and that's what I did for my third yeah. pregnancy because I knew it was likely I would have it again. And it, I think, gives this is a check and balance, right? Keeps you honest. It's a great way to learn about your body too, mm -hmm. and learn about how certain foods affect you and the way certain foods make you feel and how that might be reflected in your in your blood sugar. I know it can be intimidating to people that have never done it before. I knew the first time I had to check my sugar, I was a, a mess, um, but. It's, it's not terrible, and once you get the hang of it, again, you learn a lot about yourself. So that's how we diagnose gestational diabetic, and it turns out, um, you, so your one hour is elevated, so you do three hour, mm -hmm. and two or more out of four values are elevated, now you are gestational diabetic. Mm -hmm. Typically what I do is I have you see a nutritionist, um, and then figure out if there's a room for better eating. Mm -hmm. Some people don't want to do that. So what I say, you know what? Why don't you just think about your bad habits mm -hmm. and try to see what your bad habits are and do it kind of on your own. Because some people, you know, when you're 20, 30, or 30 and 40, do you really want to be told what to eat and what not to eat? <laughs> I, I think one thing, though, is... is a lot of people think like, oh, I eat really healthy. Every morning for breakfast, I have a smoothie. And then for lunch, I have, um, you know, X, Y, or Z. And, and the things that they're, they're eating may be healthy foods, but not for someone that's struggling with diabetes or gestational diabetes. A smoothie can be a really healthy thing, but for someone with gestational diabetes, probably going to spike your blood sugar. So just learning about which foods are going to help you to have more stable blood sugar. So, I mean, anyone that has gestational diabetes, I highly recommend either working with a nutritionist or learning more about how to eat to manage diabetes. And I think for fetus, having stable sugar or glucose is important because mm -hmm. that's the only source from the mother through the placenta, umbilical cord. Um, and the question is, why do we care if if the sugar is high, well, for the mother, gestational diabetics are at increased risk of any hypertensive conditions such as preeclampsia. Um, and for the little one, large baby, if someone had 12, 13 pounder, probably that involved gestational diabetes. And when the baby is too big, then we're talking about cesarean section and all the comorbidities that comes with it. Yeah. And the reason you know, for that, or my understanding was that if you have a, a large baby, especially with gestational diabetes, and, you know, you try for a, a vaginal birth, there's that risk of shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia, yeah. So if patient has gestational diabetes and estimated fetal weight is over 4,500 grams, which is 10 pounds, then recommendation would be cesarean section mm -hmm. to minimize the risk of shoulder dystocia and possible injury to newborns. I think that's a segue. Another thing to talk about is we see a lot of questions and comments about, you know, doctors saying my baby's measuring large and is that a reason to to have an induction or a reason to go for a cesarean? Um, 
just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And I, I think, you know, there's a, a difference and a distinct distinction between, you know, baby measuring large and you have gestational diabetes or, you know, just normal, uncomplicated, healthy pregnancy and the ultrasound is sewing baby a little bit larger. Is there a difference there or kind of what are your thoughts? I think with gestation diabetes, um, small number of patients with 4,500 gram or larger, I think primary C-section is reasonable. But it is my experience uh, that trying to induce labor because of large baby has never worked. Let's talk about induction. Why doesn't induction work? It's very simple. We don't understand that uterus. We don't understand how contraction starts. Mm -hmm. So in 30-some years, I can say we still don't know how to predict labor. We can't stop preterm labor. And we can't put people into labor very well, right? Because we don't understand uterus. The other thing is people are different. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Different age, di- different BMI, different race. People are different. So how can we ha- come up with methods which will be applicable to everyone? And even different, the same person, a different pregnancy, I, I feel like the body, different baby, different reaction even, you know. And I think that's because if you have all your three kids, they all look different. Yeah. They're different at that molecular level. Yeah, exactly. So I bet each one of them, if we were able to test their uh, amniotic membrane, their tensile strength or toughness probably will be different, yeah. which is why it's sometimes you break your water and sometimes you don't, yeah. even though it's with the same partner. Yep. Yeah. So that's why whatever your girlfriend, sisters, whoever says anything about your pregnancy is a bunch of horse, you know what, and <laughs> just don't listen to them because it's not really applicable. Um, but going back to induction of labor for large baby, um, there was a time where I used to do the fundal height measurement mm-hmm. from top of your um, pubic bone to top of your uterus mm-hmm. starting 20-some weeks until sometime in third trimester. I don't do that anymore. Why? Because I have an ultrasound. Yeah. So with a good ultrasound technician, ultrasound done around 30 to 32, sometimes I do it 30, sometimes I do it 32 weeks, tells me if the baby measures as long as the baby is not the 10 smallest or 10 largest, yeah. and I'm okay with that. Yep. Um, but it's highly unusual for me to um, induce patient based on large um, size baby. By the time at term, the range of error is probably 5 to 10%, mm-hmm. right? So we're talking about plus minus pound. Yep. So, and also, I may have um, a patient who is 5'6". Mm-hmm with narrow hip versus I may have patient who is 5'2 with better pelvis, Mm -hmm. more likely to accommodate um, bigger babies. Everybody's different. At the end of the day, I think everyone deserves a trial. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I say obstetrical medicine really is an art. This is where experience comes handy. Yeah. So important. And the relationship that you have with your doctor, that you can have these conversations, you can understand your risks, you can make decisions together about what's best for you, what's best for your baby. I think, you know, there's an important combination of, you know, looking at evidence-based practice, 
along with the doctor's experience and your preferences and desires. And when you can combine all three of those things, I think that you can have a very positive labor experience no matter what the outcome is. So going back to gestational diabetes and induction, you can simply separate into those which require medication Mm -hmm. and those who do not. Mm -hmm. Um, About one out of three will require either insulin or oral medication to control sugar. Um, Some doctors will say insulin is better than the pills, but some patients, maybe because of language barrier, and some people just cannot tolerate needle. Yeah, it's so it's, it's not going to be insulin injection every day or twice a day, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a lot of anxiety. I had to use insulin for one of my pregnancies, and the first it's time not I, easy. it's not easy. The first time I gave me that myself that shot, it hurt like hell. You know, I learned how to do it better and to make it hurt a little bit less. But there was a lot of anxiety that first time. So between injection with insulin versus pills, probably the outcome is about the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and those patients who are in need of treatment will need antenatal testing to make sure baby's fine, usually either a non-stress test, which means being on a monitor for 20 minutes or more to make sure heart rate pattern is reassuring, or ultrasound with a fluid check once a week. Mm-hmm. So it's a twice weekly with a fluid check once a week. As early as 32, if the sugars are all over the place, mm-hmm. if they're in good control, around 34 weeks. If a patient has gestational diabetes and numbers look good based on diet alone, then those patients really do not need any um, additional testing unless baby measures off. Mm-hmm. You know, if a baby measures really big or small, yep. perhaps additional testing. And then time of induction. No one tells us to induce patients at 38 weeks and zero day or 38.5 or mm-hmm. 39 this is where question is, does my patient need induction for clear medical reason? Mm-hmm. In this case, gestational diabetes. The question is, is this a first baby, second baby, or third baby, right? Yeah. So this is where in order to induce labor, which means really coming up with ways to start contraction mm-hmm. before spontaneous contraction starts, right? Um, And often cervical ripening is required. Typically, when the cervix or the opening to the uterus is not ready, it feels like tip of your nose rather than your lips. Mm -hmm. And it's about this thick, and it's closed. It's not thinned out, and that requires something. Mm -hmm. And there are two ways of doing it, either mechanical with um, balloon to forcefully open up the cervix, Mm -hmm. which is uncomfortable and often not doable because cervical opening is just not open. Sometimes uh, we use little dilators which are placed in the cervix that absorbs water. Mm -hmm. So these little sticks are very thin, but as it absorbs water, it becomes as thick as a pencil or pen. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are mechanical dilations Mm -hmm. or mechanical method. And the other is... um, vaginal pill Mm -hmm. or oral pill. We use mesoprostol. And then there is vaginal um, cervidil, which looks like a shoestring. Mm -hmm. The thing is, whether it's mechanical with with a balloon or 
oral vaginal mesoprostol mm -hmm. or cervidil, the vaginal um, yeah. suppository. At the end, which one is better? There is no clear winter or winter here. You know what that means? That means we don't understand the uterus. Yeah. And they That's all take a long time. They take a long time. Yeah. I This is not proven, but I always think that cervical ripening is chemical. I have to do something to that cervix to make it mushy. Mm -hmm. So I like using combination of um, oral pill, miso. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll do that you know, every four hours, depending on how patient responds. If she does not respond after two or three pills, that's over eight to 12 hours, then I may use vaginal suppository, mm -hmm. but I gotta break the cervix down. Yeah, you know. So when we when we're talking about induction, yes, there has to be clear medical indication, mm -hmm. but I don't want that induction process to be three, four, five days. Right. There's a difference between someone coming in, you know, that that's closed and firm, versus someone that's coming in that's already three or four centimeters yeah. dilated. Yeah. And, you know. I think that's how we made the decision for my induction yep. is, you know, I had gestational diabetes. I was, you know, past my due date. It was 40 weeks and my cervix was three or four centimeters. So we knew it was going to be quick and easy. And it was. So with you, we probably communicated daily to make sure, hey, how are you doing? How's yeah. the baby? Baby's moving. It's all good. But if imagine you were being managed by. Dr. Jones on Thursday, Dr. Brown on Friday, Dr. Kim on Saturday, mm -hmm. come Sunday, Chun comes around. Each day, each doctor isn't going to call you unless you call. Right. So you have these days of anxiety. Yep. You know there's something that has to be done. So having that relationship with your provider yeah. buys you time. Yeah. Time enough so that when you're brought in for induction, it works. A great example, I had a patient who had a C-section, and we're going to be talking about TOLAC. Mm -hmm. um, she wanted a trial of labor after C-section, or TOLAC. Mm -hmm. 40 weeks, nothing. And once you reach 40 weeks, patients are usually seen every two, three days. Yep. So she was seen every two, three days. Come 41 weeks, nothing. Again, come 42 weeks, because at 42 weeks, even with me, I like to have you be in a, in a hospital. Right, yeah. So she was admitted at 42 weeks. And about 8 to 10 hours of Pitocin, she had a baby. Yeah. But those two weeks, I know, I know it was very long for her. But she and I, we had a communication in place. Mm -hmm. So she knew that I would have done something. Now... Had she been admitted at 41, it would not have been half day. Right. Would have required like two days. Right. And after cesarean section, options for cervical ripening is none other than mechanical method with a, a balloon. Mm -hmm. So this is where always ask, do I need induction? Mm -hmm. And what are my options? Right. Because I can't think, I mean, a few cases, maybe the, the, the amniotic fluid is almost none. Yeah. Then I think the patient should be admitted. Yeah. But, uh, or, of course, preeclampsia and other right. maternal conditions. But often, we're talking about soft cases. Yeah. Right? Soft cases like 
elective induction at 39 weeks for right. first-time pregnant mother, or AMA because patient is 35 years old and one month. Right. You know. Yeah. Or slightly elevated amniotic fluid, um, blood pressure that's 140s of 90s, but totally asymptomatic. That patient, gestational hypertensive patient, I think often are brought in a little too early. Mm -hmm. We've seen this all the yeah. time, right? Yeah, I, I think the question sometimes is not, do I have to be induced? I mean, maybe yes, you do have to be induced, but does it have to be today? Exactly. Could it be in five days from now and everything still be safe, but my body be in a much, much better place to make this process smoother and easier for both me and my baby? Because as you go closer to your due date or farther away from your due date, you're more likely to respond. Mm -hmm. When I had a patient today ask me, oh, what do you think about um, inducing it because I think I'm having a large baby or large baby? And I said, well, you know, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, that's yeah. my answer. I am not very good at inducing labor mm -hmm. because I don't know how. I don't no have one any, is. I, no <laughs> one is. And we have to, we have to start with that. Um, but this really involves... And I have to say this over and over and over. It's shared decision-making between two, yep. the provider and his or her patient. Yep. Building that relationship. Building it all comes back to that. Yep. Um, let's talk about TOLAC. Trial of labor after cesarean section. Probably when I was a resident in early 90s uh, was when TOLAC, maybe like 95, so it's after my residency, when TOLAC uh, percentage was almost one out of two, 50%. Mm -hmm. Since then, it's been going down. Yep. As of 2022, maybe one out of five or less try uh, to um, have this trial of labor after cesarean section. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if patients are given more information, mm -hmm. then I think more people will try. I think so. I, you know, I think the thing that I hear a lot of times from people is they're afraid. And they're afraid of, you know, the big risk factor that everyone cites is, you know, their, their uterus rupturing. So I think understanding what is the actual risk, like what's, what is that percentage? Is it 10%? Is it 5%? Is Very it 1%? Low. Very low. Not much higher than someone who never had a C-section. Yeah. So the biggest uh, requirement or only requirement for TOLAC or trial of labor after C-section is you undergoing that process in a hospital yeah. where there is the support for emergency C-section. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, even in where we are in Boston, not all hospitals have in-house 24-7 anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And we need that anesthesia to provide TOLAC, right. which is why some of the hospitals north of Boston do not offer TOLAC. Right. Um, but American College of OBGYN says, after one C-section, you're a candidate. After to C-section, you are a candidate. Mm -hmm. um, and for those patients who undergo TOLAC, anywhere between 60 to 80% will be successful. Yeah. I think the thing to remember is the cesarean has a lot of risk associated with it as well. And when we weigh, weigh the risks of TOLAC versus a cesarean, typically the risks of TOLAC are less than, than a repeat cesarean. Um, I think 
first of all, some babies are not going to come from below. Mm -hmm. So if a person had a cesarean section because she pushed, tried to push for three hours and ended up with a C-section, she may be less likely to have a successful uh, vaginal birth after C-section than someone who had a C-section because of breach. Right. Um, but we have patients who really want to try. Mm -hmm. And I think they have to be given that fair opportunity. Yeah. And I always say the biggest thing you need about um, this process is one, patience. Absolutely. So what I typically do is if someone wants um, TOLAC, I do not schedule um, cesarean section. Uh, elective C-section is usually done at 39 plus weeks. I don't say, hey, let's schedule your C-section a few days before your due date. If you don't deliver by then, then we'll just do a C-section. Because for a lot of these people, their body hasn't really gone through the whole process of labor and delivery. So I, I, I tell my clients, we really treat this like your first baby. More likely you're going to go late and, you know, think of it as your first labor rather than, you know, this is your second or third baby that's going to come out a lot faster. This is a good time to talk about home birth mm -hmm. because TOLAC is one of a few patients who should not be considering home birth. Mm -hmm. uh, in this country, a little bit of a 1%. Um, so we're talking about a little under 4 million births a year, little over 1% birth take they are done at home mm -hmm. setting. Um, most of them are planned. I think about 13% are unplanned mm -hmm. um, home birth, and probably most of them are mine because I keep my patients at home, yeah. <laughs> and they end up delivering at home. You did have a car delivery yeah, recently. Right. <laughs> so home birth is an option. American College of OBGYN says it is an option for selected few. Right. I think it would be an amazing experience too if if you were comfortable with that idea to be to be in your own home to, to deliver your baby there and then get into your own bed and you know with the people that you love around you and and then just the memories of of, of that birth happening in that space. I think, I mean, if my husband was on board, I would have had a home birth for, for two of my three kids. So. That being said, risk factors, right? Yeah. It's really for low-risk patients. Yeah. No, no other um, risk factors such as trial of labor after C-section, mm -hmm. twins, yeah. no, breach, no, um, and any significant medical history mm -hmm. like bleeding disorder, yeah. probably not good. Um, but... In addition to that, ideally two attendants, Yep. right? Mm -hmm. And w I have had probably two or three patients a year come in and say, hey, what do you think about home birth? Mm -hmm. And I say, it's a great option. And what I do is we talk about risks and benefits, mm -hmm. and I actually find them midwives, which I like and respect. Mm -hmm. um, and it also turns out Pennsylvania as one of the highest rate of home birth. Oh, wow. Yeah, Amish. you know why? Amish. Amish. Yeah. In Lancaster County, 14% of babies are born at home. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think you make a really good point about talking to your, your obstetrical care provider about the option of home birth because having that relationship established where, you know, we hope that your home birth goes exactly how you want it to and there's no need for a transfer, but if you do need to transfer, having a provider that's, 
knows you, has been on board with this plan, that you can have a smooth transition to the hospital and can try to keep your birth experience as close to that home birth experience as possible because they know you and they know your wishes. Again, it's going to make for a more positive birth experience. So aside from low-risk patient with right midwifery team, mm-hmm. um, but also this should take place close to mm-hmm. a hospital setting in case of the need for transfer. Right. And it doesn't always have to be an emergency transfer. Yeah. Sometimes you get to the point where you need an epidural because of pain or exhaustion. Um, sometimes it can be just that things aren't reassuring and you need to get there to have a little bit of extra help. But it's not like, you know, I think people think of a transfer as like this emergency where we're taking an ambulance and you and baby are in danger. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit more of a, of a calm transfer. Yeah, and I... um. In Boston area, we know a few midwives mm-hmm. I'd gladly um, refer patients to. Yeah. Um, and that really reminds me again how if we are going to improve overall women's maternity health care, mm-hmm. we need more midwives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about 12,000 is all we have, which is, uh, I think, about a third of OBGYNs. Um, but... If you're th- if you're thinking about how in many parts of the country there are no no uh, prenatal provider, I think we need to have midwifery team. Yeah. So why do some OB providers um, say no to their patients who are s- desi- who um, would really like to try or TOLAC? Well, first it may be that that provider is working out of hospital where there's no anesthesia. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I can name already two mm-hmm. north of Boston where it's not an option. Yeah. The other thing is um, it requires patience. Yeah. A lot of OBs are not patient. Yeah. And, and it's less money. Yeah. So in order for a pay, if I schedule a C-section, we put C-section, yeah. I schedule it, at a convenient time, maybe right before I leave for vacation, done, I get paid more versus the same patient, I'm leaving town, I need coverage, and I have to say to, hey, um, John, I'm leaving this patient behind, she wants a TOLAC, and covering physician may not be comfortable, right? and it takes a lot of work yeah. for letting mother nature mm-hmm. Um, take do place, yeah. do its thing. Yeah. It doesn't I, happen. I think you unpredictable. Know, if your if your provider shoots you down from the start, you know, granted, you know, assuming that you're a good candidate for it, I don't think that's the time to try to talk them into to allowing no. it. I think it's the time to find someone new. Yep. Two reasons because they can tell you in the first trimester, sure, yeah, let's do it, and then as you get to the third trimester and decisions start to need be made like you said okay we're going to schedule your your c-section for 39 weeks and hope you go into labor before then but also i don't want to convince a doctor to do something that they're not comfortable doing i want someone that's like yeah i can i can care for you i know what to do if this happens i'm going to you know give you the best care i don't want to convince someone to do something that they're not comfortable with i'd rather find a provider that is yeah i i I support tolax i deliver v-backs all the time and i'm confident i can give you the best care you need to do that. Especially when probably two out of three TOLACs will be successful. Mm-hmm. And you just need to leave them alone, monitor them, 
And I think that's a good motto for, for all things in, yeah. the, in, in this, this um, field. But talking about switching provider, it is really hard for us um, to accept a patient towards the end. It really is hard because it's it's like dating. I go back to dating. You know, do I really want to marry somebody I just met? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Right? If someone comes in in the last month, how do I establish a relationship where I feel comfortable and the patient feels comfortable? Yeah. Um, probably better time maybe uh, beginning of third trimester, mm-hmm. like right after gestation diabetic testing. Yeah. And by then, you should really have a good sense as to, is this going to happen with my doctor? Yeah. Ask the, ask the hard questions early. Yeah. And if they say, you know, push you off or they don't want to answer those questions or you're having a hard time getting a straightforward answer, that might be enough of a sign in itself. Plus, around the time, if you want to try vaginally, you should take really good childbirth education for Dorak, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So There was one question, too, about, you know, what is a good childbirth education class? And I think there's so many different options out there. It's hard to pinpoint one. And I think it depends, too, on what, what are you, what's important to you about your birth experience. Um, so, you know, many hospitals offer them. Uh, I teach hypnobirthing, which I love. Um, but I, I would say, you know, ask your doctor if they have one that they recommend, especially if you have a good relationship with your doctor. Um, ask your doula. Research, you know, what is that class all about? Ask for, you know, references. Um, ask in, you know, local community support groups. But it's hard, hard to, to pinpoint one because there's so many different options. And most decent programs have websites mm-hmm. where you can browse through. Yeah. And I think you can also call. Yep. Um, because of pandemic, it comes down to is it going to be virtual or in person? Mm-hmm. So I have one good local in-person one I recommend mm-hmm. patients to. And then I have virtual where yep. I send them to somebody named Kaylee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>